We spent the last few episodes delving into the grand jury proceedings of 1974 and 75, which terminated in the indictment of Jeffrey MacDonald for the murders of his wife and two daughters five years earlier. More than any other, Joe McGuinness's account of the grand jury in his 1983 book Fatal Vision shaped the popular perception of it. But in re-examining MacDonald's testimony before the grand jury, we found reasons to doubt McGuinness's version of events. Setting aside, for the moment, the evidence against MacDonald, the grand jury documents show us a man at the mercy of a motley parade of dubious psychiatric and forensic experts, all marching to the erratic beat of an unscrupulous government prosecutor named Victor Warheide. In McGinnis's telling, MacDonald's angry declaration that the entire proceeding was bullshit was just one more sign of his overweening arrogance and sense of entitlement. In the real world, that one-word description was apt. But it didn't matter. In January 1975, the grand jury indicted MacDonald. He spent the next few years pursuing his flourishing medical career back in Southern California, while his lawyers advanced his appeals in the courts. MacDonald thus breathed a sigh of relief when, in January 1976, while vacationing in Maui with his girlfriend, he learned from his lawyer, Bernie Siegel, that the Fourth Circuit Court of Appeals had vacated the grand jury's indictment. The indictment had, the court found, violated MacDonald's right to a speedy trial. The Justice Department appealed this decision, and the case ultimately landed in the lap of the Supreme Court, which, in May 1978, unanimously overturned the speedy trial finding. Two months earlier, the court had refused to review MacDonald's contention that, since a military court had already cleared him back in 1970, putting him before a civilian court would amount to double jeopardy. His appeals having run out of road, MacDonald was back on the hook. His case was going to trial. I'm Matthew Craig Kelly. Welcome back to The Looking Glass. And the wheel of destiny has turned. The survival of peace and freedom will be determined by whether the American people have the moral stamina. <laughs> the great four, silent three, majority. Dustin Morgan composed the music and sound design for this episode. Our cast this episode features Brian Kovalt as Joe McGinnis and Stephen Klein as Judge Franklin Dupree. You can follow us on Facebook at The Looking Glass True Crime Podcast and on Instagram at The Looking Glass underscore podcast. We will be posting season one related documents, photographs, and short essays regularly at both of these accounts. Follow us on YouTube and TikTok at The Looking Glass True Crime. If you enjoy the podcast, please subscribe and give us a five-star review. We appreciate your support. The trial began in July 1979. By this time, Victor Warheide had suffered a fatal heart attack. The mantle of prosecuting Jeffrey McDonald now passed to assistant U.S. attorneys Brian Murtaugh and James Blackburn. Murtaugh had been pursuing McDonald since his days in the CID, but Blackburn was new, both to the case and to prosecuting murders. The son of a Methodist minister, Blackburn had grown up in North Carolina and was cut from the mold of the Southern gentleman. He thus served as a useful foil to one of McDonald's new attorneys, Wade Smith, 
who was also a North Carolina native. A former college football star and state legislator, Smith had both a sterling reputation and enough Southern charm to even the scales against Blackburn. But the hope among McDonald's legal team was that Smith's affect would offset Siegel's, especially in the all-important effort to win over 12 North Carolinian jurors. Siegel, after all, with his unkempt white hair and theatrical courtroom style, was a brash Jewish lawyer from Philadelphia, not a type known to seduce iced tea sipping Southerners. Unfortunately for MacDonald, his side quickly lost the war for the hearts and minds of the jurors. As all observers of the trial have acknowledged, the presiding judge, Franklin T. Dupree Jr., was either unwilling or unable to conceal his contempt for Siegel. The scenes witnesses describe would be comical if their consequences weren't so grave. A formidable cross-examiner, Siegel would begin grilling a witness, only for Judge Dupree, in full view of the jurors, to start squinting in apparent pain, squeezing his temples like a long-suffering father enduring another of his toddler son's tantrums. The contrast when the easy-going Blackburn addressed a witness could hardly have been sharper. Dupree was, writes McGinnis, who was actually present for this trial, obviously alert, attentive, and sometimes taking notes during Jim Blackburn's direct examination. The pattern was so conspicuous that Siegel himself at one point told MacDonald, Jeff, everything about this judge is wrong. It may be that he will take it out on you that he doesn't care for me as a Jewish lawyer, and I'm going to withdraw immediately, and you can get somebody else. But MacDonald wouldn't hear of it. This was a mistake. The judge's opposition to Siegel was not limited to his cringing from the bench. Whatever parts hubris and animus explained this flagrant flouting of judicial etiquette, Dupree had plenty of both, and if his rulings were any indication, animus towards Siegel may have been the key ingredient. In the course of the trial, Siegel filed 28 motions. Dupree ruled against all 28. Would the prosecution have succeeded in the absence of Judge Dupree's favoritism? Counterfactuals can rarely be put forward confidently. What is hard to deny is that Dupree effectively ran interference for a prosecution that was no more compelling than Warhides had been at the grand jury, or the armies at the Article 32. But with Dupree ruling incessantly against Siegel, MacDonald's ability to defend himself was fatally compromised, and the prosecution could advance its case against him unhindered by a robust defense. By the time Jeffrey MacDonald's trial began in July 1979, Joe McGinnis had managed to pull off the coup of his young career. MacDonald had hired him to write the definitive account of the murders, the trial, and everything in between. Although McGinnis's contract with MacDonald stipulated that the author would retain full creative control of the book, it went without saying that MacDonald trusted him, to the point that he made him a member of the defense team. Fatal Vision would thus offer the reader a behind-the-scenes view of MacDonald's defense at trial, and one that, whatever McGinnis's ultimate agenda, could not afford to stray too far from the facts, given that the other members of MacDonald's defense team would be present for much of what McGinnis reported to his readers. But while the basic facts of McGinnis's insider account were not in dispute, they unfailingly conformed to a narrative the author borrowed from the prosecution, 
the one that Army Investigators, and then Warheide, and now Murtaugh and Blackburn so tirelessly promoted. Jeffrey MacDonald was a slick, charming, high-IQ psychopath. Thus, McGinnis told his readers, the defense team were so emboldened by the prosecution's poor showing in the early days of the trial that MacDonald himself began speaking, on the record, to the reporters who daily swarmed the courthouse. He told them that he hoped the jury would understand that people grieve in different ways, and that his failure to adopt the posture of the anguished husband and father was not a sign of his guilt. In fact, related McGinnis, the only occasions on which MacDonald's composure cracked were when he was denouncing the authorities who had spent a decade trying to destroy him. It was, the author again insinuated, all about Jeffrey. McGinnis also echoed the prosecution's narrative in subtler, but I think more far-reaching ways. He failed, for example, to fully explore the ways in which the prosecution's case benefited from the judge's decisions and further to scrutinize those decisions. Where a more meticulous reporter would have deconstructed the legal logic of some of Judge Dupree's rulings, McGinnis simply observed that these rulings were indeed consequential, and then briskly moved on. He acknowledged, for instance, that Dupree's relentless rejections of Siegel's motions impaired MacDonald's defense, and even gave a few examples. Siegel asked the judge to forbid Murtaugh and Blackburn to introduce an issue of Esquire magazine into evidence, the one investigators had found at 544 Castle Drive on the morning of the murders, which had articles about killer cults out west, including the Manson family. Dupree permitted it. Siegel asked the judge to forbid Paul Stombaugh to appear before the jury to relate the results of his spurious pajama top experiment. Dupree permitted it. Siegel asked the judge to admit Colonel Rock's report on the Article 32 hearing back in 1970, wherein Rock declared MacDonald innocent. Dupree forbid it. Siegel asked that psychiatric testimony regarding MacDonald's personality adjustment be admitted into court. Dupree forbid it. On this last point in particular, it behooved the serious journalist to peer beneath the hood of Dupree's judicial reasoning and maybe kick the tires for good measure. After all, MacDonald had been hung out to dry by the psychiatric experts at the grand jury, all of whom had previously deemed him psychologically normal. Their testimony, as elicited by the government prosecutor who falsely assured them MacDonald's guilt was a scientific fact, had buried MacDonald in 1974 and 75. Yet now, all of a sudden, this testimony was verboten. Why? The same McGinnis who dwelt at length on this testimony earlier in Fatal Vision now proved surprisingly uncurious about its disappearance from the courtroom. Hadn't the psychiatric evidence been a pillar of the case against MacDonald? There was, it turns out, a story behind Judge Dupree's refusal to admit psychiatric testimony at the 1979 trial. McGinnis noted the judge's reasoning— since the prosecution would put on its psychiatric experts and the defense would put on its psychiatric experts, the jurors would only get confused by all the contradictory testimony. Besides, this wasn't an insanity defense. But McGinnis neglected to ask where the prosecution managed to find an expert willing to testify that MacDonald was a psychopath. It is important at this point to recall that while Victor Warheide had succeeded in cajoling his psychiatric witnesses into insinuating that MacDonald was psychologically abnormal, 
prior to his false assurances that the facts of McDonald's guilt had been firmly established, no psychologist or psychiatrist who examined McDonald had ever suggested he was capable of homicide, much less familicide. All regarded him as psychologically normal, and between the grand jury and the 1979 trial, two more evaluations of McDonald had come in, both concluding, again, that he was psychologically normal, neither a narcissist nor a psychopath. In light of the prosecution's argument that McDonald had slaughtered his own family in a momentary fit of rage, the defense naturally wanted these uniformly positive psychological evaluations put before the jury, and just as naturally, Murtaugh and Blackburn wanted them thrown out. But to be safe, the prosecutors hedged their bets. They pled with Dupree to forbid any psychiatric testimony, but argued that if the judge did allow it, it should only be after McDonald submitted to yet another evaluation, and Murtaugh and Blackburn wanted to select the evaluator. Siegel was familiar with this routine. The Army had selected the team from Walter Reed Hospital that evaluated McDonald back in 1970, and it made no difference. They still pronounced McDonald psychologically healthy. But Siegel should have been warier of his antagonists this time around, because their request for another evaluation was not made in good faith. Unknown to the defense, the prosecution had already lined up a pair of experts, and they were anything but neutral. It is interesting, in that light, that the name Dr. James Brussel does not appear in Fatal Vision. Brussel had been following McDonald's case since at least 1971, when Army investigators, like Murtaugh and Blackburn would a decade later, sought out a psychiatrist who could tar the tidy psychological portrait of McDonald previous evaluators had painted. Back then, Brussel had worked for the state of New York as an assistant commissioner of mental hygiene and had gained a measure of fame for assisting police in the Boston Strangler and New York bomber cases. His ability to detect deception in humans was reportedly preternatural. When CID investigators Ivory and Kearns met with Dr. Brussel at his home in Manhattan in early 1971, he quickly lived up to his reputation for clairvoyance. After briefly looking over the autopsy and crime scene photographs and listening to the investigator's summary of the case, he drew several conclusions. Brussel believed that McDonald's version of events was a fiction. The murders had, in all likelihood, resulted from a marital fight that had spun out of control, possibly triggered by Kristen's bedwetting. How could Brussel tell that McDonald, whom he had never met, was lying? Easy. The woman in the floppy hat had mentioned acid. That meant she and the other intruders were on LSD. And that was implausible, as, quoting Kern's report, persons under the influence of LSD would not partake in such continued, deliberate, strenuous activity. Also, the crime scene was all wrong for hippie perpetrators. Hippies, Brussel stated confidently, would not tuck the bed covers around a child after killing her nor would they use paring knives and ice picks. Hippies preferred daggers or similar ceremonial-type weapons. Dr. Brussel wasn't certain MacDonald was the murderer, but he was confident the culprits were not a gang of hippies. He requested that Kearns and Ivory furnish him with MacDonald's Rorschach test results when possible. He finally received them in 1979, when Murtaugh and Blackburn reconscripted him into the prosecution's ranks. The defense, who were oblivious to Brussels' history with the case, 
agreed to have him examine MacDonald in August 1979. As noted, we never encounter Dr. Brussel in fatal vision, but we do hear from one Hirsch Lazar Silverman. Silverman, a New Jersey-based psychologist, had been working with Brussel for years, including on the Boston Strangler case, and now accompanied Brussel for the MacDonald examination. It was Silverman's name, not Brussels, that appeared on the final diagnostic report. We first meet Silverman in the conclusion of Fatal Vision, when McGinnis stumbles upon his report while digging through boxes of case records at Jeffrey McDonald's condominium, to which McDonald had given him free access after being convicted. For reasons that will soon become clear, I will now quote McGinnis at some length. I then found the one document which, during trial, Bernie Siegel had not permitted me to see. The report of the prosecution psychiatric team, based upon their examination of McDonald in August. Though he had not permitted psychiatric testimony at the trial, Judge Dupree had made reference to this report in his denial of bail, writing that it tends to indicate that the defendant does indeed possess those traits of character which are consistent with his commission of the crimes with which he is charged and that he possesses other traits which tend to cast serious doubt on the credibility of his explanation of how the crimes occurred. Their first look at the report had left Siegel shaken and MacDonald angrier than he had been at any other time during the trial. Reading it now three months later, with the sun shimmering on the water beyond the sliding glass doors, I could see why. The report, signed by the examining psychologist, Hirsch Lazar Silverman of South Orange, New Jersey, began by describing MacDonald as a man unhappily confused about his own masculinity, and said his thought processes are distinctly marked with unconscious feelings of considerable inadequacy, in great part consciously and deliberately concealed by a facade of assertiveness, which he confuses with manliness. It said there seems to be an absence in him of deep emotional response, coupled with an inability to profit from experience. He is the kind of individual who is subject to committing asocial acts with impunity. He lacks a sense of guilt, he seems bereft of strong conscience, and he appears incapable of emotionally close or mutually cooperative relationships with women. Derivatively, he apparently avoided, even resented, the demands on him to fulfill the responsibilities of having been a husband and a father of female children. Parenthood, for him, may have been viewed as threatening and potentially destructive. The report also said, he is subject to being amnesic concerning what he would wish to blot out from his consciousness and very conscience. His credibility leaves much to be desired. In testing, he proved himself to be considerably pathological and impulsive, with feministic characteristics and concealed anger. He has a disdain for others with whom he differs, and he is subject to respond with anger when his person is questioned, on whatever basis. He handles his conflicts by denying that they even exist. He is not in touch with his feelings and essentially is not comfortable with himself. He has only an authoritarian image of himself as the machismo type of male. In terms of mental health and personality functioning, he is either an overt or a repressed sexual invert characterized by expansive egotism and delusions of persecution. He is preoccupied with the irrelevant and is unable to face reality. To suit his whims, he has the faculty to manufacture and convolute circumstances. He seeks attention and approval and is given to denial of truth. The report continued. The inanimate movement responses in his Rorschach indicate latent homosexuality approaching homosexual panic. 
and the depreciated female contents in his projections suggest more than a possibility of homosexuality, latent or otherwise. The animal content in the Rorschach further indicates homicidal tendencies. In summary, the report stated, Dr. MacDonald may well be viewed as a psychopath subject to violence under pressure, rather effeminate as an individual and given to overt behavior when faced with emotional stress. There is also, however unclear, a fear in him of what he is subject to do with his hands. In essence, Dr. MacDonald is in need of continuous, consistent psychotherapeutic intervention coupled with psychiatric attention. All that from a single session. McGinnis dropped this report like a bomb in Fatal Vision, another in a series of eureka moments whereby the reader was made to finally see the man behind the mask of sanity, the real Jeffrey MacDonald. The author again proved remarkably uncurious about the extent to which this portrait of MacDonald conformed, detail by detail, to the prosecution's theory, and the speed with which it had been produced. Perhaps Hirsch Lazar Silverman, like Dr. James Brussel, really was clairvoyant. As it turned out, the fact that Silverman and not Brussel signed the final diagnostic report may have been more than incidental. If Dr. Brussel had been eccentric back in 1971, he appeared to be something more than that eight years later. McGinnis was right. MacDonald was angered and also shaken by his encounter, not with Silverman, but with Brussel. There were reasons for this. One might even have occurred to readers of Fatal Vision, had McGinnis not left it out of his extensive quotations from the diagnostic report. It was this line. Psychologically, Dr. MacDonald musters a strangely foundational repression, even an unconscious denial, of the murders of his wife and children. Did McGinnis edit out this sentence because it so clearly illustrated that the person conducting the exam of MacDonald already believed him to be guilty? and therefore could not be taken seriously as a disinterested expert? Either way, McGinnis appears not to have consulted MacDonald about the Brussels-Silverman exam, perhaps because the author had, by then, concluded that you couldn't believe anything MacDonald said. But MacDonald made a tape-recorded statement regarding the examination the same day it occurred, and for whatever it's worth, his account strikes me as too bizarre to have been fabricated. MacDonald related that Silverman examined him first, subjecting him to a Rorschach test and then to six others. In total, the seven tests took two hours. Silverman took notes during the Rorschach test, but not during any of the others. Then came the psychiatric interview, which Dr. Brussel conducted. As MacDonald recalled, this interview lasted from 20 to 25 minutes and in no way, shape, or fashion resembled any psychiatric interview to which I have been exposed, either as a medical student, intern, practicing physician, or patient. He went on to explain that Brussel asked him nothing about his relationships with his wife, children, or anyone else. Neither did he ask MacDonald about his childhood. He did, stated MacDonald, ask me a number of questions about homosexuality, my sex drive, virility and masculinity, and whether or not I had lied to the investigators. Dr. Brussel referred to a few documents throughout his questioning, including a transcript of the grand jury exchange between Victor Warheide and Dr. Robert Sadoff, and a list of questions that he acknowledged had been given to him by Prosecutor Brian Murtaugh. But his references to the grand jury document were confused. He would quote Sadoff's answers as though they were Warheide's questions, and then put them to MacDonald expecting a response, which MacDonald couldn't give him. 
both because he hadn't been asked a question and because the statements themselves made no sense in the context of the examination, or whatever this was. After less than half an hour of this bewildering behavior, Dr. Brussel, again living up to his legend, proclaimed MacDonald a homicidal maniac with psychopathic tendencies and a chronic liar. MacDonald was stunned, but the surreality was just getting started. Dr. Brussel couldn't find his hat and asked MacDonald if he'd taken it. He then wanted MacDonald to tell him which motel he, Brussel, was staying at. It must have dawned on MacDonald at this point that something was very wrong indeed, because he asked Dr. Brussel if he knew where he was. Somewhere in the south, Brussel replied. Brussel wanted to know who would take him to the airport. Silverman informed Brussel that he wasn't going to an airport, but rather to a motel. As MacDonald put it, Dr. Brussel appeared to be at least senile. Alas, this discovery had come too late. The damage was done. The prosecution could now furnish Judge Dupree with a clinical report stating that MacDonald was a lying, murderous psychopath, and Dupree could now waive off all psychiatric testimony on the grounds that it was contradictory and would therefore only confuse the jury. In consequence, the jurors would never hear from the host of experts, some of them hand-selected by the government, who had given MacDonald favorable psychological evaluations and Siegel would never be able to call the lone exception to the witness stand, where, one suspects, the man who could locate neither his hat nor its owner would have been exposed for the sad shill he was. With the psychiatric testimony swept from the field of play, the prosecution had only one real game plan, argue the physical evidence. Indeed, when the defense put on not psychiatric experts, but more than a dozen character witnesses, Blackburn did not bother cross-examining them, other than to ask each one, were you inside 544 Castle Drive between the hours of midnight and 4 a.m. on February 17, 1970? His point, obviously, was that no amount of character testimony could surmount the physical evidence the prosecution would be presenting to the jury. This was, in a way, good news for the defense, who had demolished that evidence once already a decade earlier. Perhaps because of that, the government appeared to be qualifying some of its evidentiary claims in a manner the army had not. Siegel, for instance, had insisted the FBI's Paul Stombaugh not be allowed to parade the perforated pajama top before the jurors, and the judge had shot Siegel down. But in the midst of the arguments back and forth on the topic, Siegel learned that Stombaugh would not be testifying, as he had at the grand jury, that he'd folded the pajama top exactly as it had been found on Colette McDonald's chest. What of any value he would be telling the jury was now anyone's guess. Perhaps that he had discovered a way to fold the top so that its holes aligned with those in Colette's torso? And what would that prove? that it was not logically impossible for MacDonald to have, for some unknown reason, stabbed his wife through his pajama top? In any case, with the crime scene demonstrably compromised, the pajama top testimony rendered toothless, and all speculation regarding MacDonald's supposed psychopathy forbidden, the government, however placid its poker face, appeared to be holding the proverbial dead man's hand. In Fatal Vision, McGinnis told his readers that the prosecution spent a significant portion of its four weeks before the jury that summer presenting 
complex explanations of the circumstantial evidence, and that a great deal of the evidence was highly technical. This stage setting nicely teed up the testimony of Paul Stombaugh, which was, McGinnis reported, considered by many observers to be the most damaging to MacDonald of any given at the trial. Fatal Vision contained traces of a counter-narrative to this tale of scientific triumph. McGinnis noted, for example, that Bernie Siegel had boldly taken aim at Stombaugh's credentials, calling him a pseudo-expert, and that both Brian Murtaugh and Judge Dupree were scandalized by this tactic. In keeping with his tendency to telegraph to the jurors his distaste for Siegel, even as he touted his own commitment to courtroom neutrality, Dupree chastised Siegel for insulting Stombaugh, then, speaking out of both sides of his mouth, told the jurors, It will be for you to determine whether or not this witness is an expert. As the court has said, the evidence tends to show that he is. McGinnis thus subtly alerted his readers to the fact that at least some people questioned Stombaugh's expertise. Likewise, McGinnis recalled that MacDonald was exuberant by the time Siegel had finished cross-examining Stombaugh. Was MacDonald simply deluded, or had Siegel struck a powerful blow to the prosecution's most damaging expert witness? It was the former, McGinnis insinuated, not by delving into the complex and technical details of Stombaugh's testimony, but by referring to another expert who said so. McGinnis wrote, McDonald's buoyancy might have been lessened had he been aware of the private remarks which a criminologist hired by the defense as an expert witness had made to Bernie Siegel after having learned of Paul Stombaugh's findings. This is very convincing evidence, the paid expert said, referring to Stombaugh's pajama top reconstruction. Now I see why they got the indictment. McGinnis continued. Siegel attempted to be dismissive, discoursing at some length about how even the government's own theory of the crime offered no plausible explanation for why McDonald would have placed his pajama top on his wife's chest before stabbing her with the ice pick. The criminologist simply shook his head. You can raise all that, Bernie, but this is like a fingerprint. Holy Christmas. That's very convincing stuff. But readers of Fatal Vision need only have consulted the book in their hands to harbor doubts about this criminologist's judgment. Only pages earlier, McGinnis himself had acknowledged that Stombaugh's 1979 testimony was, and I'm quoting now, undeniably far from what Victor Warheide had told Dr. Sadoff while the grand jury had been in session, that the field of fabric impression study was the scientific equivalent of fingerprint analysis. So the fabric impressions weren't like a fingerprint, but the holes in the pajama top were? How many more times were the evidentiary goalposts going to move in this unpredictable, or was it predictable, manner? In any case, with McGinnis acknowledging that the fabric impressions testimony was at best speculative, but then suggesting that the holes in the pajama top were dispositive, we need to test the claim that the latter pointed to McDonald's guilt in a manner akin to his fingerprints being found on the murder weapons. Before doing so, however, it is worth taking a moment to appreciate what came out during the voir dire proceeding whereby Stombaugh's credentials as an expert witness were supposed to have been established. Here is how McGinnis introduces Paul Stombaugh to his readers in Fatal Vision. Stamba was a 52-year-old former football player from Foreman College who had spent 25 years in the FBI before his retirement in 1976. 
For the last 16 of those years, he had worked in the FBI laboratory in Washington and had testified as an expert in more than 300 criminal cases in 48 of the 50 states, and had appeared as an expert witness before the Warren Commission's investigation into the assassination of John F. Kennedy. And here is what McGinnis, who had attended the entire 1979 trial, left out. When Siegel attempted during the voir dire to verify Stombaugh's expertise in the fields of fabric impressions and fabric damage, the areas in which he would be testifying for the prosecution, it was like drawing blood from a turnip. Stombaugh's only educational credential was a Bachelor of Science degree from Furman University, but chemistry was his minor. He had received no honors, and he had barely passed his physics course. And when Siegel asked Stombaugh if he could name a single case in which he had testified as an expert in fabric impressions or damage, Stombaugh couldn't. In light of these facts, Siegel requested that the judge delay qualifying Stombaugh as an expert witness in these areas until the man's credentials could be verified. Needless to say, Judge Dupree ruled for the prosecution, and Stombaugh was permitted to testify. But I digress. Back to the pajama top, which McGinnis suggested was like a fingerprint. As McGinnis made clear, Paul Stombaugh made a powerful impression upon the jury, to whom he appeared as a staid, sober, scientifically accomplished witness. He was, after all, a man who had spent the better part of two decades working at the FBI lab in Washington, D.C. But it may actually have been that complex and highly technical evidence that enabled Stombaugh to maintain this appearance through Siegel's cross-examination. Along with the defense witness John Thornton, a professor of forensic science from UC Berkeley, Siegel established a number of facts, the gravity of which the jurors, and apparently also McGinnis, failed to appreciate. First, Stombaugh had not folded the pajama top as it had lain over Colette's chest, as was evident by examining the crime scene photograph Stombaugh claimed to have modeled his folding on. Stombaugh acknowledged that the garment had lain lower on Colette's chest in the photographs than it would have had someone stabbed through it and into her chest, such that the 48 holes in the pajama top and the 21 holes in her chest would align. Second, Stombaugh admitted that he had not, and here we get a bit technical, he had not checked the circumferences of those holes in the pajama top that, as he had folded it, overlapped. This would have been a straightforward means of validating the folding experiment, since it could establish that the higher holes were larger than the lower holes, as they should have been if a tapered ice pick had been driven through them from above. Third, Stombaugh acknowledged that he had not checked the direction of the broken fibers around the holes to verify, again, that his folding experiment was valid. If an ice pick had actually been driven through layers of cloth in the manner Stombaugh's folding suggested, the directionality of the broken fibers encircling the higher and lower holes should have been the same, downward. In a word, Stombaugh had not done what any serious scientist would have, attempt to falsify his own findings in order to determine their credibility. All of this was more than enough to generate reasonable doubt concerning this supposedly critical piece of evidence. But what neither the jury, nor McGinnis, nor the defense team knew was that Stombaugh had perjured himself on the fiber directionality question. 
In fact, he had studied the direction of the broken fibers all the way back in 1971, but the documents proving this only came to light, like so much else in this case, through Freedom of Information Act requests made years after McDonald's conviction. The most fastidious study of this matter is contained in Jerry Allen Potter and Fred Bost's book, Fatal Justice, which is essential reading for anyone seeking to understand the McDonald case. As the authors detail, the pajama top experiment as presented to the jurors in 1979 was conducted by Stombaugh and his assistant, Shirley Green, in 1974. But Stombaugh had been asked by the CID back in 1971 to study the fiber directionality of the holes in the pajama top. Stombaugh and Green were able to discern the directionality in 11 of the holes, which Stombaugh numbered in his report to the CID. When those holes are compared with the holes as Stombaugh and Green arrange them three years later, they falsify the pajama top experiment the fibers are pointing in the wrong directions, thus proving that the ice pick was not thrust through the garment in the manner the folding experiment necessitated. The pajama top experiment wasn't dubious, it was false, and about as far from a fingerprint as one could imagine. With their vaunted pajama top out the window, did the prosecution offer any other evidence that implicated McDonald in the murders? We will address that question and others in episode seven, that's next time on The Looking Glass.